and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I spray-painted my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are going to have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now... Let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Intentional Performers Podcast. I'm Brian Levinson. I work as a mental performance coach where I get to work with elite performers in both business and sports, and I help them develop their mindset. So we focus on how each person can set their mind to create opportunities to win moments, maximize their potential, and ultimately, hopefully, enjoy success. So I love what I do for a living, and as a result, I started this podcast with a simple mission in mind. How are people intentionally setting their mind to be their best? So we use that word intentional as we sift for unpacking and finding intentional gems that we can bring to you, the listener, to hopefully help you develop your mindset. We're all lifelong learners, hopefully, and this podcast aims to arm you with some tools, some techniques, some stories, and some ways that can help you on your journey. Now, before we get started, I want to tell you a bit about how you can help support the podcast. First, we would love if you went over to our Patreon homepage, which you can find at patreon.com backslash intentional performers. And over there, you can support the podcast with a $10 a month donation. Also with that, you're going to get access to potentially coming to our podcast retreat. So we're hosting it on May 19th, and the retreat will be exclusive for past podcast guests and Patreon supporters. So go over to patreon.com backslash intentional performers and support the show. And one of the other perks that you're going to get from supporting the show is you're actually going to get a shout out, which we're going to do right now. So Rich Greenberg was my first basketball coach. He's an amazing guy, good golfer, uh, always in great physical shape. And Rich is just a great human being and he's a big supporter of the show. So he has gone over to Patreon and subscribed and supports us at $10 a month. So just want to give Rich a shout out. Uh, He's a great human and Rich, I want you to know we're thinking of you and we love you lots. Now to today's guest. It is with Ron Shapiro. So if you don't know about Ron, I'm going to do my best to shortly give a description on who he is and what he's done, but he's worn multiple hats. 
So he's an expert negotiator. He's written books literally on uh, the power of negotiation. Uh, He's a sports agent. He's an attorney. He's an educator. He's an author. uh, He's a civic leader. So Ron has uh, done a lot in his life. Uh, He went to Haverford College and then went to Harvard Law School, which we will talk about in our conversation today. And at the age of 27, he actually served as the Maryland State Securities Commissioner. So Ron has done a lot of different things. He certainly is well-known in the sports world and in the negotiation world because the Shapiro Negotiation Institute, uh, which he founded, uh, does amazing work for corporate clients and also in sports. Uh, He consults to the San Antonio Spurs, the Brooklyn Nets, and the Oklahoma City Thunder. So Ron is He's been around some of the best leaders in sports, including his son, Mark, who runs the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, So he understands culture, he understands negotiation, and he understands mindset. So Ron has also represented Cal Ripken, Eddie Murray, Brooks Robinson, uh, and Joe Maurer and Kirby Puckett. So a lot of different players. At one point, Ron represented 22 of the 25 players players for the Orioles. He also serves as an advisor to the owner of the Baltimore Ravens, and he he just does a bunch of different things. We actually met through our connection with a nonprofit called Peace Players. If you've listened to uh, the podcast in the past, you know we've had other guests on that are involved with Peace Players, so definitely check them out at peaceplayers.org. Uh, and Ron is an amazing writer. Uh, the book that I read that really uh, helped sort of shape how I think about negotiation, and it's one of his best-selling books is The Power of Nice. Highly recommend you check that out. And Ron is also on Twitter, even though when I asked him, hey, Ron, what's your uh, uh, Twitter handle? He said, I'm not really sure, but he said he does enjoy Twitter and he does use it. Uh, His Twitter handle is at Ronald M. Shapiro. So check him out on Twitter. Definitely buy The Power of Nice or any of his other books and check out the Shapiro Negotiation Institute. But without further ado, I'll let Ron tell his story and he'll do a much better job than I will. So I'm just excited to present to you, Ron. And when you listen to this episode, I know you're going to love it. Punch on over to iTunes, write us a review. It really does help us spread the word and spread people like Ron. So thanks to Ron for coming on the show. And without further ado, I present to you, Ron Shapiro. Ron, thanks for uh, joining me. I'm actually joining you. We're in Baltimore. Uh, I actually used to come to this Whole Foods, believe it or not. We're, we're in Mount Washington, Baltimore. Is that what it's called, Mount yeah, Washington? The, the Mount Washington. What's neat about the building we're in is it's an old dye mill where they care, they dyed, created screws and nuts and bolts. and So it's an old mill building, uh, which they've renovated into great shared working space, and it's a fun place to be. It's super cool. And my story goes, I worked for Gifford's Ice Cream and Candy Company. And one of my first jobs when I was in my 20s was selling ice cream and candy. And Baltimore was one of my uh, places that I could go sell ice cream to. And we had a deal with Whole Foods. So I used to come up here probably once a week and go in there. And uh, so it's bringing back memories of me as a young ice cream salesperson. So I have to bring you back here. Maybe I'll ask you about ice cream sales later. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll chat about it. Because I think it, it actually is interesting how it impacted my life and way that I didn't think it would when I was in it. But I want to focus on on your life. And uh, I, I always want to know sort of the chapters of your life. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can do them from a decade standpoint. Uh, but give us like the basic chapters of your life. And I'm sure there'll be plenty of fun stuff for us to dive into once we get into those. Well, everybody has a chapter called the family formative years. And, and I had uh, a 
pretty amazing run there. I, I didn't always do the right thing, and I was held accountable by my father for it, but my father was a, a, an inspiration point for me. He was an immigrant who came to the United States uh, at a young age, uh, made it through the seventh grade because his family had to put him on the street to work in order to help support the family. He was the oldest. Um, he sold newspapers and ultimately sold encyclopedias, but he was a guy who always saw the glass half full. He didn't see it at, that he was put on the street to help the family earn money and had to lose school. He saw it as an opportunity to read newspapers, believe it or not, and encyclopedias. And by the time he was out there in the world at age 20, um, most people thought he was college educated. He, he really accumulated knowledge. He was a guy, as I say, who shaped my life with the glasses always half full uh, philosophy of life. And I learned one other thing with my dad. You talked about working at Giffords and selling ice cream. Uh, my dad had a small plumbing business. I couldn't sell the plumbing, but I had to go down in the basement with the rats and load the soil pipe from the trucks onto the trucks. Um, I sometimes would curse my dad under under my breath because it was 102 degrees in South Philadelphia in the summer. But being with my dad helped me see how when he, whether he walked down the street or walked into an office building or was at his warehouse, it was always that every person's important. Um, he had a good word and time for people, whether they were the chairman of the board on the 50th floor or the maintenance guy working on the boilers in the basement. And uh, then and there, I learned the value of every human being and that it's not just the big shots that we ought to be thinking about. It's all people, uh, at least all good people. And we have to make that learn how to make that determination in time. So that's chapter one. Yeah. So okay. I would love to just unpack that yeah, a little bit. So yeah. humanity and this notion of humanity and that uh, we're no better than the person next to us based on title or based on anything other than we look people in the eye, we know them, we, we understand them, the relationship side of it, which I know you value tremendously. Mm -hmm. But I want to go back to the optimism side. Did he show that? How did he, how did they, how did he pass that down to you, the, the optimism or the glass half full? Well, the, the, obviously the story of how he shaped his life was part of it. Um, the story of how he met uh, in the in the business he was in, it was the 10th of the month and you had to pay your bills. And some months there wasn't enough there to pay his bills and how he would get on the phone with people and talk to them and, and infuse in them positivity about moving forward with him and that he would move forward with them and the relationship would be good. Um, he just always had a way of finding the best in people and, and the best in situations. And I guess I, I picked up on that and it certainly imprinted and has affected my life ever since. Very cool. And what was the rest of the family dynamic like? Well, my, my mother was the, the caregiver in every sense of the word. If we had a need, she addressed it. You know, I, I remember I was president of the student body, both in junior high school and in high school. And I would frequently need a, a sport coat or a tie at the last minute. She was there in five minutes with whatever I needed. Uh, uh, she was there providing for our, our emotional needs when, when my dad was working. Uh, so she was obviously the, the other key piece of, of my development. And I had an older brother and a younger sister. I was in the middle. That was both good and bad. Uh, my brother was the pathfinder, so I learned from him. My sister was younger and had a serious disease for a while, so we had to give way to her and take care of her. And then a little bit later in life, I should I should jump in. 
my dad passed at a relatively early age, and I was only 16, and I was starting college. Uh, and uh, I felt responsible for my mother to some extent. Got to my senior year in college and decided that since my dad wasn't around and I couldn't go in business with him, I'd go to law school and park myself for a while while I figured out what I would do. And I applied to University of Pennsylvania Law School. I applied to Harvard Law School, other places. And I got into Harvard, but I said to my mom, I wasn't going to leave her. I was going to go to Penn because it was in Philadelphia and I would help her and it would cost less. At that point, uh, my mother had, had remarried and I got a stepbrother. And that stepbrother, Donald Cohan, is a brother to this day. Um, and he grabbed me one day and said, look, uh, we'll, we'll find a way to take care of your mom. You go take advantage of the opportunity of going where I went to law school. You'll meet a lot of people. You'll learn a lot of things. And you'll develop confidence. And that was a real turning point in my life. Yeah, so that just gave me chills as you yeah. were describing it. What does that do for you emotionally that, that Donald came in and, and oh, it just, that it to was you? Amazing. He did it more than once, by the way. That was just one example of him influencing me in my life and and you know, guiding me. I'll never forget I was in law school. We talk about formidable years and change. Because I was always an officer in my class in high school and college, and I was always out doing something and not always going to class, by the way, I never fully developed my writing skills. I was, I was great at speaking, but lousy at writing. I never knew whether I was going to get an A or a D on a paper because of grammar or whatever else it might be. And I went to Harvard Law School, and they had a program called the Second Year Writing Program. Not part of the curriculum. You had to do it as extracurricular activity. You had to write a paper a week. It would get ripped apart. You had to read a book, Strunk and White, Elements of Style. But that was a real turning point for me because I feared writing because I never knew how people would react to it before that. Had no hesitance about speaking. And getting into that program and learning to write at Harvard Law School may have had as significant an impact on me and my future as anything I did. So I, I remember that, again, Donald Cohan influenced me to go to Harvard, influenced me to take advantage of the program. Then he said, Ron, whenever you write something, even if it's for a program like this, take it to the next step, develop it into an article, develop it into something. Don't let your research go to waste. And I started publishing articles right after I graduated from law school in law reviews, in newspapers. And again, his influence was brought to bear. I want to go step, take a step back. So you mentioned being student body president. Uh, you get into Harvard Law School without being a proficient writer. Um, what is it that A, allowed you to be a leader from a young age? And then B, how do you get into Harvard Law School without being a great writer? You know, I sometimes ask myself how I got into Harvard Law School. <laughs> But I, I remember my roommate, who is one of the great writers in this country, a man named Norman Perlstein, who his last uh, visible, highly visible role was as editor-in-chief and chief content officer of Time magazine. He was the editor-in-chief of the Wall Street Journal, a whole bunch of other things. And he was a genius, brilliant, still is. Um, and uh, I remember Norm and I going to our mailboxes to get our LSAT scores. Now, I expected a very low one because I had low SATs, and I should tell you a story about that in terms of getting into college. And I open up my LSAT score, and it's like 98th percentile. 
And Norm's was not quite as high. Believe me, he's a lot smarter than I am. And he turned to me and he said, I guess you're going to Harvard. You wow. know? I mean, I don't know. Maybe I had a good day with a test. I can't tell you. And and I had the extracurricular. I mean, I was obviously president of the class and president of the student body. But whatever it was, it was a gigantic door of opportunity. The story about my SATs I should share with you. Go for it. It'll show you where I got a little negotiation skill at an early age. I my SATs were low, um, for whatever reason. Uh, I got great recommendations from my principal and from my teachers. Everybody in the school loved me because I, you know, I did all the stuff they wanted me to do, and my grades were were fairly good. I'm not sure why. Um, and I went for an interview at a college named Haverford College, a small college outside of Philadelphia, which in those days was rated either one or two with Swarthmore College or three with Amherst Colleges, small liberal arts colleges. It was a long shot that I would get in, but I went for my interview with a gentleman, the admissions officer named William Ambler. And we, we hit it off and we had a great conversation. And he said, Ron, is there anything else you want to say to me? And I said, Mr. Ambler, you got a very difficult job. You get thousands of students applying for 100 spaces. We had a very small college, and now it's only 1,000, then it was 400, now it's 1,500. Um, and I said, I, I want to help you with your job. And he said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, look, you've got to pick a class, and you've got to have someone at the top and someone at the bottom. And I know that LSAT is a problem, I'm going to give you the bottom. Now you can build from there. That's awesome. And he used to tell that story whenever I, you know, would get up at, at Haverford and speak or do anything. And I got in. And what about leadership? So wh what drew you to being part of the student body or uh, people, putting yourself out there? Like people, that? plain and simple people. I, I just thrive on people. Uh, you know, I've lived a life in which making money or making a living has never been an issue with me. I've never sought to look at what my paycheck is. In fact, I tell people most of the time I would give a credit card for each day I lived and, and pay for it, okay? Um, but I love people. And, you know, somehow uh, my ability to connect with people um, and, and pretty much my transparency, I would p speak from my heart. I think the only thing I, when I think back on speaking, uh, sometimes I would... Uh, uh, put a muffler on myself. I, did, I wanted to be as humble as I could be. I didn't want to sound like I was saying too much, but somehow I connected with people and, and uh, that led to my, from literally junior high school through college, being either president of the class or president of the school. And I'm not pounding my chest now. Believe me, that's no great achievement. In, but it's, it's something at the time. Um, but it was primarily because I loved people, and I loved to speak out, and I loved to speak up for people. Um, and I think that was the key, you know, and from there, we we stopped running for office. But go ahead, I'll talk about that <laughs> well, another time. Uh, the other part that you mentioned was sort of a fear of writing, but not having a fear of speaking. Yeah. And, you know, fear of speaking for most people is, is very real. Uh, when they ask people what their biggest fear is in this country, speaking is usually a bigger fear than death, um, which is pretty, pretty amazing when you think about the power of that. What was it that you were fearless about when it came to well, speaking? Well, I'm not going to say I was fearless, because I will tell you, my grandchildren today look at me and they hear me speak, um, they come to events or things, and I say, was I nervous? And they say, you were really nervous? 
So there's always the fear. I mean, it's like the athlete when he steps to the plate or she steps into the net or does anything that they may do in a, in a game. They, they feel a nervousness and their adrenaline goes. So I have fear, but, but I didn't worry about the fear. I mean, I, I, I knew that once I did it, I would enjoy it. Um, so that, you know, that's, that's carried me significantly. I might add, I was speaking about college and law school, that as we get older, we want to do things and, and establish things to help others. Um, I'm not much for endowing things by naming it after me, or but, but I did create a program at my college called the Mark and Lillian Shapiro, my parents, uh, Speakers Initiative. <clears throat> which is directed at, as much like the second year writing program was directed at helping the writing skill, at that fear you talk about, and helping young people, men and women at, at Haverford, develop skills as speakers and communicators so that that fear level can cut down. Sure. And one more part on your childhood. So you have this massive event happen where it sounds like the person you look up to most in your life passes um, at a young age for you. How does that impact you on your journey? Well, it, it had me recalibrate what I was going to do because I loved him so much that I just wanted whatever business he would have been in, I would have liked to have worked with him. So that caused a recalibration. It sent me to law school when I wasn't even sure I wanted to be a lawyer, and I, I got a footing in the in the legal profession. Um, uh, it was it was painful, and and as good things would happen, uh, I'd always mark the good things with, "Wow, if my dad could have been a part of this or, or seen this," and I would share that with with my mother. So, you know, that's that's the main thing. By the way, when I got out of law school, rather than, although I got courted by some pretty major law firms, I decided I wanted to be a civil rights lawyer. And I, I joined a Baltimore firm that was a business firm. And in those days, we were courted as law students. It was, it was a buyer's market rather than a, it was a seller's market rather than a buyer's market. I was a seller as a student. And uh, I think going into civil rights law, uh, was because of that philosophy my dad helped me develop. It was because of the stories we shared about Jackie Robinson, which was uh, probably the first major sporting thing that stuck in my mind, aside from the Philadelphia Phillies winning the pennant in 1950. Um, and, and you know, I moved to a town, Baltimore, to be a, a federal law clerk um, and discovered the town I moved to, even though it was theoretically a semi-northern city, still had segregated housing developments and segregated apartment buildings. And so I and a man who became my best friend, Larry Gibson, started suing those places and desegregating them through an organization called Baltimore Neighborhood. So I've jumped far from the question you asked, but the, the roots are still in my dad and, and his feelings about people. Yeah. And I just want to get into the notion of you're getting courted. You know, you could go work for a fancy law firm yep. in, in Philadelphia, I would imagine. Philadelphia, New York. Uh, and so what's pulling at you in that moment to say, I want to go to Baltimore? And well, it, it, several things. Number one, uh, uh, I had a clerkship in Baltimore. Number two, uh, my wife's family at the time it, it was rooted in Baltimore. Uh, and I met a man, my, my then father-in-law, who's now deceased, um, who I really connected with in, in, in heart and soul. And 
uh, I think I got a second father of sorts there, and he needed a consigliore, so I would counsel him on things. And uh, and then third, Larry Gibson, the man I mentioned, you know, we started the clerk together, and then we started the dream together. I might add that this was 1967-68, just a, a, a couple of years after Martin Luther King had a dream. Um, and today we're, we're recording this on the anniversary of Martin Luther King's assassination. Well, my friend Larry Gibson would sit in the law clerk's chambers, in the judge's chambers, and he would tell me about his dream. And his dream was that we would desegregate housing, and his dream was that he would help elect uh, black people to office in the state of Maryland at a time when they weren't elected to office. I mean, after Reconstruction, it just fell through the, the bottom. And he went on and he says, I helped him. I'm not sure how much I helped him, but uh, to elect the first state's attorney, black state's attorney, the first court clerk, the first judge, elected black judge, the first mayor, elected black mayor, and on and on and on. And then he went into international elections and all, all kinds of things. We really should talk about him today. But the connection with him was significant. The law firm I joined was significant and that they gave me the leeway to do that as long as I would practice some securities law, and we should talk about that. Um, and and then I started my own law firm. So, you know, I call my career the accidental career. Everything was, nothing was very much by design. My dad died. I went to law school. Uh, I wanted to do civil rights. I went to a law firm where they said, well, we don't make money on these kinds of cases. You do securities cases and you'll get a chance to do your civil rights cases. And I said, okay. I became a securities expert somehow and uh, got appointed Maryland Securities Commissioner when I was 27 years old or something, and started to enforce against securities fraud. And we'll talk about it later, but that led to my involvement in the world of sports. Accident. But I say to people, life is a series of accidents, but we've got to be prepared for them. I love it. You know, you have a way of being humble and saying, well, I'm not sure how much I did. I'm not sure. He was, you know, your college roommate was very smart, but, you know, I don't know how I got a, uh, you know, this score on my LSATs. If you could go back and, uh, you know, I understand that accidents and luck happen. What was your your sort of sauce that that you did as you look back and, and what helped you put yourself in the best position to be successful? Well, I, again, I don't know that there was a, a lot of sauce by design. I, I, I'll come back to people again. I, I somehow, <laughs> my grandchildren, one of my granddaughters wrote, for my 75th birthday last week, wrote a little talk about me. And she said, you know, the most impressive times with Pops, they call me Pops, is when I get in a cab or get in an elevator and he talks to everybody in the elevator. Now, not everybody may like it, but he treats them all like they're family. And we got in a, a, a cab in Washington when he took me to see some museums and uh, the man was from a foreign country, and he har hardly spoke English. But by the time we got out of the car, he felt like he had a new friend. So I guess I connect with people. Um, I didn't do it by design. I'm not sure it was. it's part of a plan I can give people. But I'm saying look for value in the people around you. And, and that's number one. And, and number two, 
Remember what Harry Truman once said, it's what you learn after you know it all that really counts, which is a very humbling statement. And it means we're in a constant progression of learning. I have a friend, uh, R.C. Buford, who's the president of the San Antonio Spurs Sports, and he's as respected in that industry, in the NBA, as anybody. And he's a lifelong learner. He never stops absorbing, never stops connecting, never stops wanting to learn from other people. And I think those are the kinds of things that uh, helped me get where I was. Uh, and I always was going to be the hardest worker in the room, not the smartest, but the hardest worker in the room. So the work ethic's still there. Come back from your childhood doing some blue collar, maybe work with, really with dad. I mean, if someone said to me, what should I do with my kids? First of all, I'd say, be careful. Don't push them too hard. Okay. Secondly, I'd say, if you can get them a blue collar opportunity, if you can get them working at things to understand what other people have to do to earn a living and also to learn what it's all about, that's a that's a great piece of the puzzle in terms of building an understanding and building confidence for the future. So I like the way you singled that out. Yeah, it's interesting because they uh, I saw an interview with Kobe Bryant and they asked Kobe, what's the best compliment that someone could give you? And your head goes to best player of all time, best scorer, champion, you know, killer on the floor, competitive. And he said, then I'm a blue collar worker. He said, that's, yeah, if, if I do that, I know I've got talent. Things will work out pretty good for me. Um, yeah. And he didn't come from a, a blue-collar family either. His dad played professional basketball. Yeah. He grew up in Lower Marion, yeah. Philadelphia. Right. Um, so I think blue-collar isn't necessarily about um, what you have. Uh, it's about how you live. And it's uh, an ethic. It's an it's ethic. An ethic. Yeah. It really is. You lit up. I want to go back one more spot, and then we'll, we'll move the ball forward. Uh, you lit up when you were talking about Larry and the work doing with Larry. I'm just curious, what does that do for you emotionally? Because you talked about earlier, you've just sort of trusted your gut and it's not necessarily that you have this linear path, but you trust your instincts and you trust people and you're sort of on this journey. Uh, emotionally, when you talk about the desegregation and take me back to 67 and 68 and uh, what an interesting time to be alive and to, to be a lawyer, uh, emotionally, can you unpack that for me a little bit? I, I don't know if I can. I mean, it's a great question in terms of emotional unpacking. And that's the nice thing about interviews like this because it gives you an opportunity to do it. And speaking of interviews, and this ties into Larry, just three weeks ago, I had quotes, a conversation with him in a program I created called Sages for the Ages. And it celebrated 50 years of friendship. And friendship is a two-way street where you give to each other and you grow together and you respect each other. And although you do things differently and although you may approach problems differently, you somehow blend what you do in order to achieve things. Larry was my graduate school in terms of, I, I, I understood civil, the civil rights issue academically. I observed it externally as a, as a student uh, and as a, a citizen of the community. Um, but I don't think I ever really felt it until I met Larry. And when I would sit in chambers with Larry, the judge's chambers, and he'd call his mother, who was a domestic working in a household, and he'd need to talk to her about something, and um, and uh, a child would answer, and the child would say, yeah, wait a minute, and 
hey, Daisy, and I'd hear it through the phone, and I'd, I'd cringe. Larry says I cringed more than he cringed, mm. okay? But the demeaning approach in which people viewed you because of your color, not because of who you were or, or what you were. Uh, when we started to go into the housing desegregation cases and the elections, and I saw reactions of people who were unsettled by it. By the way, Larry did something that I did, and that is the enemy was never the enemy. They were there by the circumstance of their lives, and so we weren't going to go after them as bad guys. We were going to go after what they were doing and trying to change it. Um, and so, you know, Larry had a gigantic impact on me because he was the window through which I saw how a large part of our population and then throughout the world, how populations, including in other places in the world, me as a Jew and how I would have been looked at, um, how the other half lived and how they struggled. I mentioned earlier in the, in this broadcast, uh, uh, Martin Luther King and this being the anniversary of his death and right now playing on HBO as a series uh, about Martin Luther King's last years and the unbelievable angst and challenges he faced and taking on the those final years of the civil rights struggle and then dealing with uh, uh, the Vietnam War which is another thing I, I, I had strong feelings about and you know he was black, and he had to do things and felt things that I couldn't feel. Stokely Carmichael, who was more extreme than him, felt things and did things. Larry was my perspective giver and my window to all of that. But you said something that, that resonated with me, which is the enemy is not the enemy. It's it's a product of whatever their environment was or however they were raised or whatever it might be. Where does that empathy or compassion or however you would label that come from? And how does that impact you uh, with what you do and how you live? Well, you know, it, 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 I guess it impacts me in terms of what I do in the books I've written and what I've taught about negotiation. Uh, remember, The Power of Nice is a book about negotiation, and it's very strategic, and, and it's not just a philosophy of be nice to people. It's how you can maintain your cool and not lose it and bullies, tyrants, and impossible people is how to deal with difficult people and but not become one of them. And, you know, they're all premised on that other people are the product of their, their interests, uh, the product of their circumstance. That doesn't mean, Brian, that there aren't some inherently evil people in the world. I don't want you to think I roll over for everybody. I often say that there are so many good people, I'm going to focus on them, and I'm going to focus on people who may disagree with me, who have inherent good qualities, and, and can I teach them, convert them, change them in some way? Um, and uh, I, I maybe have lost your question at this point, but I hope I'm responding in a broad sense. And so it's affected everything I've done. Yeah, I mean, the question is just around empathy and compassion. Yeah. And I think it sounds like you value empathy, but too much of anything can be a problem. And that there's a time to also acknowledge that, hey, this is someone that might not be able to be changed, or this is someone who inherently sees the world in a completely different way. And then I either walk away or I engage. Um, you know, if it's if it's... Someone who's destroying other human beings, I guess I have to then test my courage and decide whether I engage. 
Um, or if it's a negotiation, I'm just, I don't need their money. I don't need their deal. I just walk away. But before I get there, I do a lot of analysis as to whether that's the alternative I want to follow. So analysis, preparation, talk about how those have impacted your course. Well, you know, I another book I wrote is Dare to Prepare, How to Win Before You Begin. And it's also one of the three Ps of the power of nice, prepare, probe, and propose. And I will say this to you, recognizing that I'm by no means the smartest guy in the room, I have two things going for me. One, I will be the best prepared guy in the room, and I actually create checklists for preparations, and I write about them and use them in deals. And two, I probably made as many mistakes in my life as anyone, and I learn from my mistakes. So I catalog catalog the learning from mistakes, and I prepare analyzing through a series of steps various items um, so that when I go into something, I know that I will have done everything I could do. Because the only, what do you control in life? You don't control the other side. You don't control outside events. You don't control that the president now is different than the president before and the policies are different. You control yourself in your preparation. So preparation is the only thing I control and I'm going to be well prepared. It's interesting. On my ride up here, I did some calls. I listened to a podcast. But before I did all that, I actually had it on Sports Talk Radio, and there was a golfer on there. And the golfer was talking about how he prepares before he approaches the ball and what the walk up to the ball means and how important it is. And in golf, we see that. We see that routine. Uh, we also see what they do on the range to prepare. And you know, There's a lot of preparation that goes into golf. But one of the things that we don't often talk about is the post-shot routine. What is their routine after they hit a shot? Is it if it's good, if it's bad, if it's what they want they do, not. And that is usually where the emotion lives for most people that touch a golf club because a lot of times it's not exactly how we wanted it to be. So you mentioned the checklist that you have before uh, you you know step into a negotiation, but then you also said, and then I also make sure that I learn from my mistakes. So I'm curious, is there anything that you would intentionally do uh, after a negotiation to reflect and to capture the learning that went on? Well, I have a, a partner named Michael Moss in my in my sports and my negotiation enterprises and he's I, I we kid each other I call him he's the world's greatest second guesser he's a great devil's advocate and I'm a real believer in devil's advocacy and I turn to Michael and I say let's take a look at that what do you think now he's telling me going in what he thinks I might do wrong but he's there telling me when I come out what I may have done wrong and what's really essential here is this thing you call humility. You know, I always say I think the greatest leaders are humble. Why? Because they're willing to have someone else input to them so that they are not just speaking from their own perspective, but it's a shared perspective. And uh, that second-guessing process, at least getting the benefit of a devil's advocate, is so important to success. You know, you get old like me and people give you honors and awards and I try to avoid most of them. But if I get one and Michael's in the audience, I always turn to him and he, he does not want to be the first chair. He wants to be the second chair. I said, take the business, do this, do that. And I say, there's a big reason why I get what I get today. There and then I point to another chair, my wife, Kathy, who's fearless when it comes to telling me I'm wrong. And so, you know, th that's essential. 
that's essential to taking stock and being effective. So I'd love to get in the mindset of a negotiation with you and we'll come back and get, we'll, we'll make sure that we tie up the loose ends on, on the story as well. I'll, I'll leave it to you. <laughs> but humility. So athletes are amazingly humble in their preparation. And you know this, you've been around, you know, some of the greatest athletes in the world uh, and specifically some of the greatest mindsets in the world. Humility is massive in preparation because it allows us to get better, improve, work on our weaknesses, develop skills. Um, but I'm curious, one of the things I see a lot of times with elite athletes, and when I say elite athletes, I mean college, aged, and above, is that they sports will humble you. It's you know, especially a sport like baseball, right? You're gonna get humbled. What I find is a lot of the athletes I work with, they're actually very, very humble. Where they struggle is when the lights are on, believing in themselves and having the confidence or the swagger or heck, even the arrogance when the lights are on. So I'm curious to hear you play with humble in preparation, but confidence in performance and how you see confidence play out in a negotiation. Well, we, we ought to talk about this concept of uh, confidence when the lights are on in two kinds of lights, the lights of publicity and the lights of performance. You're talking about the lights of performance. For sure. Because we know that whether it be athletes or actors or even CEOs, some people act overly confident when the lights are on and it's publicity and they're, they're play acting more or less. And they do lack the words of humility, which might help them be perceived in a different way. I okay? 100% okay. agree with that. Got it. 100%. But the lights on in performance, I mean, I just think that, that what happens is, you know, some of them, uh, when the lights are off, practice to a level where they just don't let it bother them when the lights come on. Some are fortunate enough to have a coach or a guide to help them deal with how to perform when the lights are on. So it's a function of a, a number of different things. Some have the per, I just, I'm ha I had lunch last week with Brooks Robinson. He was going to be fine whether the lights were on or off or in wherever they were, because he just had the temperament to go along with the skills that he had to be a hall of fame third baseman. Um, Cal Ripken, another player I, I represented, um, is a guy who put that together with the constancy of repetition and practice and having a father there who was a coach on the teams he was on, you know, to remind him that, that the game is what it is. Eddie Murray used to wear a, a necklace that said just regular, just to remind him that, you know, he was just regular, but when he got up there, his skills would take over. I could go through a list of people I've seen and worked with and say it's a combination of the repetition, good coaching, um, and some personality factors that carry them through that lights are on in performance moment and a willingness to grow and learn. So I can't let you go when there's posters of Cal Ripken up in my brother's room uh, growing up you know, outside Washington, D.C., but in Maryland where D.C. didn't have a baseball team at the time. So, you know, for my generation, for people that grew up around here and probably all over the country, Cal uh, stood for something maybe larger than life. Um, 
what were the attributes or the qualities that made him special and continue to make him special? Just a, a, a drive. Um, well, number one, an understanding of the importance of fundamentals. He had a father who created what some people called the Oriole Way, but it was basically doing things fundamentally right, okay? Two, a willingness to practice and a willingness to take care of his being in shape like few people I've ever seen. Uh, you know, when he built a house, he built a gym. It wasn't because he just wanted to shoot baskets. He wanted to get games and drive himself to be in shape and constantly in motion and moving. Um, and I think those are those are the factors coupled with, as he would tell you, some good luck. I mean, you know, the, the, to play the number of games he consecutive games he played and achieved the records he achieved uh, was very special and and took a uh, a certain amount of courage, uh, a high level, a high degree of pain tolerance. A lot of things factor into what makes an individual that individual. It is amazing because that was the record that people thought would never be broken. That's right. And then he broke it. And I am, an, I, in a lot of ways, like to think that things always get better and records are made to be broken. But that record specifically, it, it will not be broken because baseball and sports in general, it doesn't allow it anymore. Like, I don't even know who, he, is, is, who, who, is there even someone no, who played no, every no, game last no, year? No, no, no. It's no, impossible. No. Well, there, there are a couple who may have played every game last year. Yeah. But, uh, uh, there, you know, it's it's just it, under the circumstances of the modern game, it's going to be tough to break it. Now he played in the modern era. Okay, mm -hmm. it's interesting. His teammate Eddie Murray was well along the way to a streak, but it only got to less than two thousand. Okay, <laughs> and then a ball bounced and hit him in the eye. Yeah, you know, circumstance plays into it. Um, Kirby Puckett, who was another great client of mine, who he, his joy of life. May being on the field or off the field, it was the same, okay? I mean, everybody has a different ingredient coupled with talent and things that drive them. Gets glaucoma. Mm. The doctors on the team don't give him a test that year. He might have, they might have arrested it. Um, things happen. Uh, and Cal was able to move around all those things because of his qualities and things broke in his favor, external things broke in his favor as well. And Eddie Murray is someone who also, you know, you grow up and you're watching and from a at-bat standpoint and just what he would do and how he would take at-bats is something that stuck with me as a child. And uh, it, to me, uh, as a child watching him, it was always like he was in control of the box in a way that I didn't see other... Like, he, you know, he was he was the he was the scientist in the laboratory when he stepped into that box, and he was looking at all the elements of the form. He knew what went into the formula for success. He was amazing in, in on the field, just amazing. Yeah, the, the control aspect in a game where when you're standing in that box, you really lack control. Yeah. Uh, and there's a he took control. He took, he control. took control. It was amazing to watch. Yeah. All right, we'll go. Go back to you though. When you step into a room, how do you shift from? By the way, I don't step into a box very well, but but I must tell you just a, a little bit of me. I, I go down to spring training uh, about three four weeks ago in Dunedin, where the Blue Jays, which my son Mark runs, uh, work, and uh, uh, the whole family gathered to celebrate my seventy fifth birthday. Now, obviously, the highlight of the weekend were the times I spent with my grandchildren um, and hearing them say things that, that 
you know, fill your heart with joy. Um, but the personal highlight was that I went into the batting cage. I want you to know. And it reminded me why I represented players <laughs> rather than, than play. But I did make contact. <laughs> but when you're, when you're in your own sort of batter's box, right? Mm-hmm. It's a negotiation and yeah. people bring you in to help them. Yeah. Um, what, where does your confidence come from in those moments? How do you, how do you experience experience? And, and, and I really, first of all, I got thrown into negotiations at a young age. Uh, even in the civil rights cases, I had to negotiate out a lot of them. Um, I became securities commissioner of Maryland at a very young age but I had no help in the office, so I couldn't try every case I wanted to take the Wait, court. So you're 27 years old. You have this massive job. How mm. are you confident? Like, how? Where does that confidence come from? Because it's not experience at that point. Uh, uh, I, I, I'm not sure, but a lot of preparation, the willingness to outwork the other side. And when I had one of the biggest security frauds in the nation, First Federated Commodity Trust Corporation, or some sort of commodity options. Um, and some pretty rough fellas. I mean, I even saw a gun in that in that one, and big law firms, and it was me, you know. And how am I gonna how am I gonna take them on and shut them down? Well, I believe I outworked them, and I it was less form and more substance. And uh, I think the big law firms wanted to intimidate me, but in the end, I'll never forget being in the courthouse when those two guys, the culprits, came in in chains, and we had shut them down. Um, I, again, I may have digressed from your question, but, but, uh, but you I, said I believe my preparation, yeah. what, what I don't have an experience, I make up in preparation and there's no coincidence that the first item on my preparation checklist for negotiations, fundraising, problem solving is precedence. And precedents are examples before that I can use to persuade people. But more importantly, precedents are what's gone on in the past that's been effective or ineffective here that I can use either in addressing how the other side approaches something based on their past conduct or addressing how I can approach something based on how people in my shoes address similar issues or people in the past. Beautiful. So precedence also then being prepared with precedence gives you some level of confidence that you know what history has said and then how that might impact the future. Not only what history has said, but what, what the particular people I'm dealing with have done historically. And remember though, but the checklist has alternatives, interests, deadlines, uh, strengths and weaknesses. But yes, no question that the precedents in history are a very key part of it. When did you develop the checklist? Um, I probably developed it in the 80s. I started negotiating formally in the 70s. Uh, I would say by the (coughs) late 80s, I had formalized it into a checklist, primarily because, and this is the irony of being, I, I was in sports by accident. I was still a corporate lawyer. I still had some businesses that I developed. But people would call me to speak because I represented Brooks Robinson. I represented Cal Ripken. I represented Kirby Puckett, Joe Maurer, whoever. And I then would speak about negotiation skills. And with the help, again, of only could do it with the help of someone, of my then partner, Mark Jankowski, we created a negotiation. He came to work for me as a lawyer. So before we even formed the Negotiations Institute, as a young lawyer, he and I would formulate 
a process that we could communicate to folks when we were teaching. So not only we were saying, this is how I did the deal, this is how you can do the deal, and that was prepare a preparation checklist, probe, learn how to ask questions and be a good listener, and propose, learn the principles of proposing. So giving them the fundamentals, just like Cal Ripken would have the fundamentals. A fundamental, he had fundamentals from his dad as to how to how to field the ball and how to hit. And I had fundamentals as how to field the, the demands and how to strike or, or, or respond. So walk us through the transition from securities to sports and, and how that all went down. Well, that's really kind of interesting. And this goes back in time again. So I'd been a civil rights lawyer. The law firm said... Uh, take these securities books, at least if you have a securities question, we can bill your time, because they couldn't bill me as a securities lawyer. The plaintiffs couldn't pay me. Um, and so I took them, and I developed some skill in securities. In fact, picking up on that Donald Cohan, my, I said, here I am in securities, and I'm learning. Why don't I start writing articles? And I started to write articles that got published about various fraudulent schemes and other things going on in the world of securities. And at age 27 or so, I get a call from the attorney general, what I like to be the securities commissioner of Maryland. Um, and I start to uh, enforce in some high profile cases. Now, how does all this lead to sports? One day I'm sitting in this new little law office. I left the law firm I had worked for. Um, and I had started my own little law office with another guy. And I'm waiting for the cases to come in. And I get a call from the then owner of the Baltimore Orioles, a guy named Chuck Huffberger, and he says, uh, uh, Mr. Shapiro, I'd, I'd like to retain you for our legend, uh, Brooks Robinson. And of course, I had seats, by the way, at Memorial Stadium in the first row at third base where Brooks played. So I went, Brooks Robinson. <laughs> and of course, this is like asking a kid to go to a candy store instead of the bar library. Um, and I go out, to Brooks's house, his wife Connie, who I tells the story to this day, looks at me and says, "Why did they send a kid to help us with this problem we have? We're going to go bankrupt in this store thing." And the long and the short of it is, I work Brooks out of this terrible investment problem, and this is I was no longer securities commissioner. Um, and I, one day, as a post mortem, after we're successful with Brooks, and we after we stage a day called Thanks Brooks Day, which was in his last year, which filled, and in those days you didn't fill baseball stadiums. You had good crowds, but filled Memorial Stadium. Jerry Huffberger was there, and I was standing with Brooks, and he said, good job, Ron. And I said, can I ask you a question, Jerry? Also known as Chuck, so excuse the, the use of two names. I said, um, why'd you call me for Brooks? He said, well, the obvious reason was you were securities commissioner, and I read about some of these anti-fraud cases, but more importantly, you were also a civil rights lawyer, and you were involved not only in housing cases, but in the Vietnam War and convincing kids not to cross over into Canada, because once they crossed, the emigration policy in the States was their citizenship was revoked and they couldn't come back, basically. Um, and you convinced my nephew not to cross. And I just remembered those two things, and I called you. Life by accident, circumstance. But there's a combination of securities law and civil rights law leading to a sports opportunity that I never otherwise would have had. Yeah, life by accident, and also you deciding to put your 
content out there because Donald had, had said, "Hey, when you have some content, put it out to the world." A lot no, of no a lot of people are afraid to put their thoughts out in the world, and so you were able to then put your thoughts out, get the reward of knowing that you helped his son not make a mistake, um, and that probably helped you also realize the power of writing. Well, you, you know, you talk about putting content out there. I wrote an article as a lawyer before I was securities commissioner called The Going Public Through the Backdoor Phenomenon. Um, I wrote it with a guy who ultimately became the dean of Maryland Law School and Baltimore Law School, a great guy, Larry Katz. And that article got a lot of attention, including the attention of the attorney general of Maryland who appointed me securities commissioner. So because the content was out there, I get that job. Because I do that job well, and I put a lot of content out there because I rewrote all the rules and regulations, and the connection with uh, civil rights law and the Vietnam War, I am Brooks Robinson's lawyer, who then says, why don't you help other people? And now I'm a sports agent. The reason why it resonates so much with me is because I'm doing a podcast, and um, for me, the the best gift I can give people is introduce them to some of the people that I meet along my journey. And I'm very fortunate to have met some really special people in my journey, including you. And, you know, the challenge is when we put content out, it feels somewhat self-serving. Um, well, who am I to put something out there? What, what's special about me? Why should anyone listen to what I'm doing or what I have to say? Um, and that's one of the reasons I love the podcast is because it's not me. It's, it's, I'm introducing the world to all these people. Um, but the one thing that really resonates with me is, you know, I'm in the process of writing a book and I, I go back to that sort of humble, like, well, anyone really want to listen to what I have to say? Well, if it can impact somebody and help somebody, then you actually have an obligation or a responsibility to put that content out there. And I think a lot of times we are afraid to put that stuff out there because we think that it's just self-serving, but actually us holding that information inside is more selfish than sharing it with the world. Well, there's nothing wrong with self-serving. If, if, if you self-serve with humility and you understand that there but the grace of God go I, and that you're not serving self solely out of a desire to emblazon the world with you, um, it's okay to be self-serving. I mean, there's a, you shouldn't be di- diverted from doing good. So I, I'm agreeing with you. Um, uh, the, the joy of writing a book lies in the fact that more people than you will ever meet will have the opportunity to embrace those principles. When, when I'm recognized, not because I'm Ron Shapiro, but because someone read my book and says, wow, it's really the way I want to do things. It's really helped me become systematic and understand that I can, I can be on a plateau with someone who I thought would crush me or, or I don't have to crush them in order to achieve what I want. Um, I feel like, wow, okay, it was a little self-serving, but more importantly, it, it served others. I have a wife who's a spiritual healer and, and, Many people are in quest of healing in the spiritual sense of the word, and she can't heal the world. She And by the way, she doesn't charge for her services. She just does it. She's got a, a, a gift that she was given. 
And one one day she sat down, and and I'm not going to explain the process of how she received what she received, but she just started writing. I watched her write with her eyes closed. I couldn't imagine. I couldn't believe what she was doing. And in the end, she said to me, "You know, I I'm always so frustrated because I can't reach enough people to be helpful, and I don't understand the the whole concept of of." spirituality the way she does, okay? But this book has em- enabled me to reach people who I would never reach. So that's that's the moral of that story. Super cool. Um, I want to start winding down, but you mentioned your son um, who runs the Blue Jays. And when I had Danny Ferry on the podcast, Danny was talking about his journey. And he really credits the relationship with your son that started when he was playing for the Cavaliers and your son was with the Indians from a, a young age. And Danny talks about how your son has impacted the R.C. Bufords of the world, the Sam Presti, who is with the Oklahoma City Thunder, and, and, and the list goes on. Um, talk about those people, including your son, Buford, Presti, Marks with the Brooklyn Nets, uh, and I'm sure you've interacted with other people that are head of sports organizations. What qualities do they need to be successful to build the culture? Because all of those, all of those people are so enamored with culture. Danny Ferry included. Um, what are the things that you notice about how they run an organization and what they value? Uh, yesterday was Mark's birthday. Um, Mark Shapiro, by the way. I have five sons and two daughters, and I could tell you great things about all of them, okay? One son runs the mentoring movement in America and probably much more important than anybody running a sports team. And Mark Shapiro runs the Blue Jays, will tell you that. Um, Others are in other fields, healthcare, finance, and the most important thing I could tell you, sorry to digress, is that whatever they do, they're good people, okay? That, That should be the the bottom line message for our kids. But I wrote Mark yesterday and I said, happy birthday, son. And I sent him a picture when he was a high school football player. And I said, you know, I look at you today and and I I think about, you know, what you do as a leader. And I think about your uh, compassion, your commitment, your courage, and your humility. Uh, and how you lead organizations. I mean, he led the the Indians from the wilderness, not only in on the field, but into redoing their stadium, creating a fan experience. Then he was willing to walk away when they were going to cash in, and they are cashing in as he leaves. He goes to the Blue Jays, all full of challenges, and changes the culture. I think great leaders like R.C. Buford, like, like Mark Shapiro, like Steve Bashotti, who who I work with at the Ravens, think about the culture they create, the culture of openness, the culture of uh, setting an example, but being open to what other people in the organization have to share and what other people in other organizations have to share. Uh, creativity is is very important. But again, in the end, you got to be humble. You got to be willing to open your eyes that there may be better ways to do things. You got to be willing to scrutinize what you're doing and whether it's the right way. And then you've got to have the courage of your convictions once you set a goal in order to achieve that goal. And remember, you're being judged not only by your peers in the organization or by the people who own the organization, you're being judged by 
50,000 fans or a million fans and their judgment may be somewhat skewed, but it, but it impacts. Uh, and again, uh, I think it's, it's a con- combination of great compassion, openness, courage, and, and humility that, that drives these people to success. Um, Mark is a, I take great pride in, in, in what he achieves, but I take much more pride in who he is. Awesome. The last thing I want to find out about is when we've met previously, you've shared insight into what your routine looks like on a daily basis. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> and a lot of the people I interview have ridiculous routines. So I, you're probably not going to be the most ridiculous, just so you know. Um, but you mentioned to me, there's, there, well, not just to me, but I've read about there's four types of strength that people have. There's mental, physical, emotional, and spiritual. We've hit on spiritual. We've hit on emotional. We've hit on mental. Um, but I'm curious about the physical because for those that don't know Ron, Ron mentioned he's 75 years old. Uh, this past summer, we climbed a mountain together and and Ron, I think, got to the top of the mountain with without much sweat. Uh, there, there was some sweat, let me tell you. <laughs> a that. little bit of sweat. Mm-hmm. And, and But Ron's a, in, you know, a, a strong guy, clearly values his, his body and, and, the, and the physical nature of your body. Um, but I'm curious to, for you to share what the routine looks like, what time you wake up, the morning routine, and, and what that all looks like. Well, as a backdrop, God and genetics impact greatly on our physical future. Um, but we have, we have some control, too. Uh, and so my, my day is sort of odd because I uh, start my day uh, somewhere between, and this is between 3 a.m. and, and 3.30 a.m. in the morning. What time do you go um, to bed? Uh, and I was going to end the day there, but, <laughs> okay. I'll, but I'll end it now. By 9.30 at night, okay? Now, that's not a lot of sleep if you count it, but I should tell you that, and you'll see, I start my day and I go to the gym or I work out at home. Um, I'm frequently at the gym by four o'clock. I'm frequently out of there by five thirty. I'm frequently at one of my offices by six or six fifteen. And when I get to the office, I read the paper and I take a nap. So I'm making up for some of that sleep deficit. I'm a napper, okay. Um, and then uh, uh, I eat very healthy breakfast. It's oatmeal and whatever else it may be. And I use fruit and vegetables during the day and but I can snack on some bad stuff occasionally too. And I probably will take one or two 10-minute naps or 15-minute naps before the day is over. So before you got here today, after I had done a couple hundred emails, after I had met with some of my people, and there aren't that many now, it's a smaller staff than it used to be, um, uh, I said, I'm going in the other room, and we call it, I'm going to shut down. And I shut down for 15 minutes. Uh, and so that's another part of the routine. Um, and then I read a lot. I think that's part of my mental health. Um, I watch films. I'm, I'm a lover of films. Uh, and you know, I end my day by taking a walk on our farm with my wife, uh, eating a healthy dinner. And then I begin the wind down period in the evening. And so physical health is a, is a big part of the day. But as I say, it's kind of a crazy day because when you say to people, I get up at 3.30, or they get an email from you at 3.30, they're scratching their heads. But I, I take care of myself. What's the best book you've read, uh, read in the last year? Oh, that's, that's an unfair question. Uh, you know, it's, it's, first of all, when you read on the Kindle, you don't always remember the title of the books. 
truly. I mean, you, you see the title once, and then you just read great books. But I read Homegoing recently, which is a a, a modern version of, of Roots, which was a, a, a terrific book. I read uh, a great book on Edison and Westinghouse and the lawyer uh, Cravath and the battle over what kind of electric current uh, uh, would would rule in America and whose light bulb would rule in America? It's got to be read, and it's the day is night, or the you know the night is day, or something. It's in in the light of in the light of the night, or in the light of the day. So it, it's a terrific book, um, and uh, there are some wonderful books. I read a book by, about Munich. Um, uh, by Morris, who also wrote Officer and a Spy. So you can see I like historical fiction. Um, I like books that have lessons. Uh, I read some nonfiction, but not as many self-help books. I just love the world of historical fiction. I'm reading Grant now, which has started out to be a wonderful book, written by the same guy who wrote Hamilton, which Ch- Ron Chernow, which was the basis for the wonderful show Hamilton. Super cool. Uh, so I want to give you a platform to promote uh, anything that you want to promote. I know you're on you're on Twitter, so you 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 can't get away with this conversation without giving people your Twitter handle. <laughs> I don't if, even. I'll, I think I think it's at, at Ronald M Shapiro or something. I'll, but, I'll put it in the show notes okay. so people can follow you on okay. Twitter. I know we found each other. Uh, really, I know you knew my dad, but really our relationship uh, blossomed from our experience with Peace, Peace Players. Players International, which is a passion of mine. Peace Players mentor. Work Kids, the Jerusalem Choir. I love organizations that lift kids up. That to me, it, it just drives me. Um, and in, with peace players, we see, you know, Jewish and Arab kids, Irish and Catholic kids in areas of conflict in the world. Blacks and whites use sports to come together. With Orc Kids and with the Jerusalem Choir, music bringing kids who have differences or are at greatly at risk together. Um, those are the mentor where we, we recognize that education is important, but not every family is as lucky as some families are to have parents who have the time and can make the commitment to kids that they need to be nurtured and led along. That's my passion in life. That's the platform I'd like to leave you with. There's no other platform other than uh, you know all of this, and I think you started it so well. All the books I write, all the things I do— are tied to the importance of relationships in the world. I don't want to negotiate deals that destroy relationships if I possibly can do it. I don't I don't want to do things that trample on relationships because when you get to be my age and you look back on life and you look at the doors of opportunity that have opened for you and the doors of opportunity to do for others as you want to do, it all comes down to the wonder and joy of relationships. It's a great place for us to end. And I just want to end by saying thank you. Um, thanks for mentoring me. So it's good that you, you know, talked about mentor and, and the work that your son's doing there. Uh, because we've had conversations and uh I really, you know, it's interesting. I have a dad who has always been a mentor to me. So uh for much of my life, that's just been enough. Um, but to get different perspectives from different people in different walks of life, in different occupations, uh, and I've really tried to uh be intentional about 
uh, those types of people. But for us, which it was by accident why we developed this relationship, but for you to open up and, and to teach me a thing or two or to give me insight or to just ask great questions uh, has helped me develop myself and, and also my craft and, and what I'm doing business-wise. So I just want to thank you uh, for the time and the effort and the energy um, and just want to do that publicly as well. Well, I, I enjoyed this. And if I may have a last word, uh, along the training route I had where I trained my books and the power of nice and the other uh, books. I, I did a training for your dad's company. I don't know whether you know that or not. I and, was there. Oh, that's right. That's <laughs> right. In fact, he introduced me to you that day. And, and, uh, I, I learned about your dad and your dad has accomplished a lot in, in business and in sports, but the most important thing we can say about him, he's a good man. He is a good man. And I would give you the last word. The only thing I will also do is plug The Power of Nice because I read that book and, and found it immensely useful. So if you haven't read it, please check that out. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Brian Levinson. Uh, and uh, thanks, Ron, for coming on. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. Recognizing that I'm by no means the smartest guy in the room, I have two things going for me. One, I will be the best prepared guy in the room, and I actually create checklists for preparations, and I write about them and use them in deals. And two, I probably made as many mistakes in my life as anyone, and I learn from my mistakes. So I catalog, catalog the learning from mistakes, and I prepare, analyzing through a series of steps, various items, um, so that when I go into something, I know that I will have done everything I could do. Because the only, what do you control in life? You don't control the other side. You don't control outside events. You don't control that the president now is different than the president before and the policies are different. You control yourself in your preparation. So preparation is the only thing I control and I'm going to be well prepared. <laughs>